Well, welcome everybody. Uh, I say welcome to everybody. It's good to see you all except for Jerry, who uh, noticed that I was all wired up tonight and said, oh, you're speaking? I didn't pray for you. And then he went on to explain, I don't generally pray for John. He thought, John, he thought you were uh, uh, talking. He says, but I'll, I'll pray. I need to pray for you. Okay, thanks, Jerry. No, I welcome the prayers. Very much so. And, and then he turned around and he says, there aren't that many people in here, are there, Dave? Thanks, Jerry. <clears throat> Appreciate it. Welcome, everybody. I'm glad you guys are here. Took some time out of the week <clears throat> to kind of be with you. We've been talking about uh, talking through Ecclesiastes, and uh, John kicked it all off a few weeks back, and then uh, Adam picked it up a little bit, and then John Kirkpatrick did it last week, and we've been talking about the meaning of life, and as I've been kind of wrestling with this, started several several weeks ago, reading through Ecclesiastes and reading the, the chapters over and over and reading specifically what we're going to be covering tonight, chapters 7 and 8, just trying to understand this, and, and I'm thinking, what is he talking about? Uh, and, and I remember um, an article I'd read a long time ago um, about Ray Bradbury. Anybody, everybody knows who Ray Bradbury is? Science fiction writer? He was. Uh, he wrote. His big thing is is Fahrenheit 451, right? Anybody Anybody see the movie or read the book? Two people. Okay. He wrote this book, Fahrenheit uh, 451, back in 1953, uh, and talking about what is what is the the author of Ecclesiastes talking about and the author's intended meeting. Ray Bradbury's uh, Fahrenheit 451 novel got wide acclaim, everybody loved it and read it, but misinterpreted the author's intended meaning. It's about a future society where books are illegal. Uh, firemen didn't put out fires, they burned books. Special interests and other minorities objected uh, to books that offended them. And as a result, authors tried to avoid offending people. And it's kind of like, hmm, sounds like today. And this is 1953. Soon, society banned all the books to avoid all conflict. And people just watched excessive amounts of TV on wall-sized sets. This is 1953 that he wrote this, right? And they listened to radio with headsets, leading empty lives, lives of vanity. Uh, and the interesting part is most believe that the book was about government censorship because they were all bur burning the books. But he says, no, that's not what it was about. It was all about TV and how TV was killing books. Uh, and really, I mean, we really have become a short story type of book, except for Adam. I mean, he reads books on vacation. I mean, novel, big, big nonfiction books on vacation. Uh, but we need to be careful in, in understanding the author's intended meaning of all this. Uh, interestingly, at the end of the book, end of the, book, um, end of the story, uh, the firefighter, the main character, gives up burning books and joins this group that memorizes books and so that the legacy of these books would live on. Guess which book he chose to memorize? Ecclesiastes. Who's gonna memorize Ecclesiastes? That's what he did. It's a pretty cool book. So, we'll try to follow the rules of good hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Thank you, Adam. Would you come up here and speak, please, for me? Uh, to interpret it literally and then culturally, uh, historical and grammatical context, and then using other scripture, but it's still a difficult book uh, to, really, to really interpret. 
Most believe it was written by King Solomon about a thousand, thousand years before Christ. Um, and, and many theorize that uh, his first work, work was more the Song of Solomon. And then as he, he progressed, he more Proverbs. And then later in life, they figure he, he probably wrote this book, Ecclesiastes. So let's turn to chapter 1, um, if you would, if you've got your Bible. And we're just going to read kind of overview a little bit on, on before we get it to chapter 7. Chapter 1, verse 12. It says this, <clears throat> I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after wind, which is a pretty uplifting start to the book. And so Solomon's focus uh, is, oh, you guys did a good job of, yeah, let's go to that next slide. Uh, Solomon's focus is under the sun or under heaven, which is really kind of his phrase for life apart from God. And I kind of tried to diagram this thing where it's under the sun and this is what, this is what the, the preacher is seeing and what he is he's observing. It's under the sun. It's the physical realm. It's man's view. It's visible. And it's just a vapor. It's just a vanity. It's just a, it's just a, a vapor. Whereas above the sun is spirit. It's God's view. Now, God's view has, he has all of the spirit understanding, and he's got all the physical understanding. So God's view has it all. And it's hidden from, from man, and it's eternal. But the preacher, the, the Ecclesiastes preacher, Solomon, all he's really looking at, I mean, he's before Christ, so he, he doesn't see, he doesn't, he doesn't understand the cross, he doesn't, doesn't know anything about the cross, and he concludes that everything I've seen, life under the sun, is vanity, striving after the wind. In fact, he begins and ends his book with the same kind of thing. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, he begins, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And then seven verses before the end, in chapter 12, verse 8, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. So he kind of bookends everything he's going to write and says, Life is vanity. And again, all he's looking at is life under the sun. So all he's got is the visible the known. Well, tragically, I, I was thinking about this. <clears throat> it seems like a lot of folks that you talk to uh, are living apart from God in, in today's society. Uh, and they, but they, sadly, they think they're okay. Uh, they become so distracted by the urgent things uh, that they lose sight of the important things. And in 1960, uh, this is a while ago, uh, an author by the name of Charles Hummel published a book called The Tyranny of the Urgent. Anybody ever hear about that? Everybody see that book? Really? Nobody? Wow. Okay. Maybe one or two. It was uh, when I was first became a Christian, we were doing some Bible studies at work, and, and a, a friend of mine uh, gave it to me because Charles Hummel's a, a Christian. And it, it's great. It just talks about the tension between the, the things that you have to do right now and the important things. And, he, and he, there's a little 
uh, a quote here where it says, the important task rarely must be done today or even this week, but the urgent task calls for instant action. The momentary appeal of these tasks seems irresistible and important, and they devour our energy. But in the light of time's perspective, their deceptive prominence fades. And with a sense of loss, we recall the vital tasks we pushed aside. We realize we become slaves to the tyranny of the urgent. And it's true. I mean, we do. We, get, we have schedules. We've got kids we've got to keep up with. We've got deadlines to meet. You know, we've got to get to church at 6.30. The urgent things aren't bad, just to be clear, they're like running kids to the soccer practice, deadlines, homework, that kind of thing. But the important things, these are soul critical things, spending time with others. And we just had a really sweet time. Thanks a lot, Adam, for inviting us over there with the Asia group last night for dinner. That was, that was just a sweet time. Uh, so spending time with others, spending time with God in prayer, in his, in his word, listening to his still small voice uh, in ministry, serving and discipling others. And there's no expiration time for that. Sadly, there's no deadline that says we've got to go and do that today. It's just critical for our soul. So we become so engrossed in these urgent things, we, we sadly, we rarely consider, stop and pause. Hey, this stuff is really important, and I need to get, even our neighbors are going through the same, the same thing. So Ecclesiastes is kind of like a school zone of sorts uh, on the road of life. You know, we're, we're, we're focused on the road down the road uh, a piece, and there's this school zone uh, sign that comes up says slow, you know, children at play and children walking. So we really want to slow down and, and just see the, the real God stuff of life. So uh, Solomon, Solomon, he applies his heart to understanding, trying to understand life under the sun apart from God without his understanding or knowledge of anything really spiritual. And he comes up with two themes of advice, and both of them are God-focused, which is really interesting. Number one, fear God and keep his commandments. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 13, you don't have to turn there, but the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Number two, he says, enjoy what God has given you in life. Chapter 2, verse 24 says, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also is from the hand of God. And then in chapter 8, he says, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And he repeats this over and over in chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 9. This is the same message. Hey, we can't understand all that God is doing, so enjoy at least what he's given us. And what's what's interesting, Solomon's not an atheist. He fully believes in God. He he understands that completely. He just doesn't fully understand what God's all about. Fear God, keep his commandments enjoys blessings, produces a wise and and profitable life. So we looked a little bit at Solomon's investigations, uh, and they're they're very man-centric, not God-centric. 
life apart from God is vanity, and he concludes that over and over and over. We looked at uh, John, I guess, or Adam perhaps looked at it. Uh, I guess it was John. Self-indulgence, chapter 2, we went through that. Uh, pleasure and wine and possessions and women. And, and verse 11, he says, Behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And then Solomon tried living wisely, not foolishly. And in verse 15 of chapter 2, he says, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. So he's trying all these different things, and we've gone through these, so this is just review. Third thing we talked about, hard work, toil, King James, labor. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 2, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So we finally get to the end of chapter 6, just before we get to 7. So if you want to turn to 6, verse 12, Solomon, some, some commentators uh, have kind of divided this, this verse, the book, by this verse, where he kind of goes from investigations to conclusions, but honestly... Ecclesiastes reads a lot like Proverbs, and he kind of, this is messed up, this is messed up, this is messed up. Looked at this, that's bad, you know, just Proverbs kind of style. So, but verse 12 in chapter 6, he reiterates his frustration with everything that he's been looking at so far. He says this, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So he's one of the wisest men to walk the earth, apart from Christ, and he can't figure out what life is all about. <clears throat> so over and over, he wrestles with this not knowing. So he's the wisest guy. John, you called me a deep thinker last night, and I was... Really, hmm. had thought about it. I was a deep thinker, but Solomon was a deep thinker. He was constantly trying to understand what life was about, how things worked, what was going on. So you probably know, being that we're in an engineer town and scientist town, you probably know a few people that are like that, <clears throat> that are constantly trying to figure things out. So why don't we turn in chapter 7 to verse 14, and he's wrestling with this not knowing. Verse 14 reads like this, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him, right? The spirit realm is completely hidden from him. It's unknown. Skip down to verse 23. It says, all this I have tested by wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Verse 24, that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And over in chapter 8, verse 7, for he does not know what is to be. Who can tell him how it will be? I mean, you can just sense he's really kind of... Verse 17, frustrated. 
chapter 8, verse 17, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In the first chapter, verse 18, he kind of really confesses that his wisdom is a complete detriment. Verse 18 of chapter 1 says this, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I worked with a, I worked with a man back in Dallas, and um, he was a military guy. He was in the military like 20 years, and he retired, became kind of a program manager of sorts. And he was a really great guy to work with. We had a good time working with each other. And one, one afternoon, one evening, we were standing around in the hallway. There were three of us. And I was kind of a new believer at the time. Um, and so I was really interested in just talking to anybody about the Lord. So I kind of asked him, you know, and I can't remember what, how the question went, but something about, you know, hey, do you go to church? Do you believe, you know, what's your thoughts on the Lord? Well, he says, I used to, but it just, it didn't make any sense to me. I don't think it's real. I mean, I studied it, I looked at it, I don't think it's, I don't think it's real. And over and over, people have looked at it, looked at the Lord and said, it doesn't make any sense. I'm off. I'm done. It, that can't be real. So that's the first point. And this, this is pure genius right here. Life apart from God makes little sense. I mean, for us, it's, that's a no-brainer. Life apart from God makes little sense. <clears throat> and, and Ecclesiastes is all about that. Solomon earnestly searched for the meaning of life, applying his great worldly wisdom, and he just can't find it out. Life, life under the sun does not make any sense for him. I mean, apart from God, if God's not in the equation, it just didn't make any sense. And that's because we now live in a fallen world. Sin has corrupted God's creation. Things are no longer fair. There's, there's, things are not truthful. Things are not right. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to, uh, to bad people. All of our labor seems meaningless. Nothing seems to be profitable. Uh, there's no gain in striving after pleasure. All's fleeting. It's what's the point? Pretty uplifting when God is not part of the analysis. Nothing seems to be profitable under the sun in Solomon's view. And worse, sin's placed a veil over our eyes so we, we can't see. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see through a glass darkly, right? But then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know even as I'm known. I, can't, I don't have, even, even as a believer, I don't, I don't see fully as a non-believer I don't see. Regarding sin, many consider verse 29 in chapter 7, so let's look at that, 729, a real important verse for Christian doctrine. And it goes this way, see, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Schemes, King James says inventions, uh, New American Standard says devices. Uh, 
the root of that whole word is to think, to plan, to invent, to calculate, that kind of thing. So man is calculating, he's, he's scheming, he's, he's planning. And two doctrines come out of this verse. <clears throat> A, God made man upright, which is the doctrine of original righteousness. God created all things good, and they, and they make sense. But the B part is man, literally Adam, has pursued godless things, the biblical doctrine of original sin. So man's sin has caused things now not to make any sense. Man is continually seeking out many schemes. A few verses earlier in verse 20 in chapter 7, it says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It kind of sounds like Romans 3.10 and that whole the Roman road. A few, a few later, a few verses later, Solomon is talking about obeying the king in chapter 8. And he says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Meaning if sin's not dealt with quickly, it grows. And all I can think of is Barney, Barney Fife, nip, nip it in the bud, right? If, we don't, if you don't nip it in the bud quick, it's going to grow. I was at college one, uh, one night, freshman in college, um, and it was a Friday night. I was going out, <clears throat> uh, hang out with my friends, and go to the men's room, come out, and I thought I had this really freshman idea. I thought, well, I'm going to go get a roll of toilet paper. I'm going to roll it down the hallway. Brilliant. And so I did that. I wasn't a believer at the time. <laughs> Caveat. Uh, and so, and then I left, and I said, well, that, that actually made it pretty far down the hallway. There was, there was a lot of people in this. So I came by, back about uh, 12.30, 1 o'clock at night, and there was about six inches of toilet paper everywhere in the hallway. So, nip it in the bud, sin. You're going to have six inches of toilet paper in your hallway if you, even a little bit of sin. So in light of this <clears throat> seemingly senseless and sinful life, Solomon continues to evaluate things that are better. And then we kind of get into the first part of, uh, of chapter 7. And he sums up the first part of chapter 7 in verse 13. So let's look at verse 13. And this is kind of the crux of what we want to talk about uh, tonight. <clears throat> uh, it goes like this. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And the answer is no one. And he, he answered it himself in the, in the first chapter. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Yeah. But then he continues in verse 14 of chapter 7. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So in his search, Solomon sees two different days, one straight, a straight day that has prosperity, comfort, ease, joy, and then there's this other day, this crooked day, that's filled with adversity, trials, suffering. It's, got a, it's a hard path. And he understands that both of those are from God. So the second point uh, as we go through the first few verses of chapter 7, we're going to see that God, God's crooked path is more profitable than the straight. Adversity is better than prosperity. 
It's interestingly, God's so cool. Uh, last the end of last week, you know, I'm, I'm doing all this study and I'm trying to understand and and uh, so I'm listening to the radio. I'm listening to this pastor on the radio on the way home and he and he gives us this illustration and uh, he says there was a man who shipwrecked on this island for a good while and he built a hut and he prayed every day, Lord, rescue me, please let me be rescued. So one day, his heart his hut burned down and he cried out to God why have you abandoned me and you know probably the end of the story the next day ship passed by and rescued him who had seen the smoke from his burning hut right so we don't always understand why God does what he does and why he places adversity in our path but we can be sure and we've quoted this verse a lot that even the adversity is for his glory and for and for our good right Romans 8.28, we know that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, the good things and the bad things, for those who are called according to his purpose. So even the crooked days, even our crooked days, even the worst day we had or the worst news we got last week or even today, that's for God's glory and for our benefit. And the reasons, okay, so you start thinking, all right, well, why all these crooked days? Why all this adversity? There was a man named Thomas Boston, who was a Scottish pastor. He's a theologian in the early 1700s. And he wrote this book called The Crook in the Lot, or the Sovereignty and Wisdom of God Displayed in the Afflictions of Men. That's a big title. The Crook in the Lot. And he's, it's talking about adversity in our life. And he, and he goes like this. The truth is... The crook in the lot is the great engine of providence. Now, okay, this is 1700 uh, way of talking, right? The truth is the crook in the lot is a great engine of providence for making men appear in their true colors, discovering both their ill and their good. And if the grace of God is in them, it will bring it out and cause it to display itself. It so puts the Christian to his shifts that however it makes him stagger for a while, Yet it will at length evidence both the reality and the strength of grace in him. So the first reason is God, God's crook in our lot reveals our character. The adversity in our life, the trials, the pain, the suffering, and all of that may cause us to stagger a little bit, but in the end it's going to reveal who we are. Paul gives a second reason in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. So the second reason why there may be adversity in our lives, crooks in our lot, is that cause us to refocus and rely on God. Three. Yeah, Jesse, I think you can probably go to the next one, right? There you go. Three. Because of sin in our life, it's possible. We have adversity because we have sin in our life. <clears throat> it's just drawing us back to God. Number four, God may be simply trying to display or displaying his glory, right? And I mean, I think of Job. I think of Lazarus, right? Well, he's been dead. 
He may just be displaying his glory. So, okay, so let's look at the crooked things that are better, starting in verse 1 of chapter 7. And before we do that, let me just read through. Let me just read through these verses. We've got some time. A good name, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for, it is, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or gladness. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise to madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So, yeah, let's take a look at the... Go ahead to the next one, Jesse. Just the list on the right-hand side. On the left-hand side, you have things that are easy, pleasant, comfortable, and he says those aren't the better things. On the, le- on the right-hand side, these are the crooked things he says are better. Good name, okay, that, that makes sense. But a day of death, the house of mourning, sorrow, house of mourning, rebuke of the wise, sober spirit, meaning, hey, you're not going to be cracking up and going crazy, you're more sober. The end of the thing, patient, okay, sometimes you want to pride, eh, no pride, now you just got to be patient. Patience is hard. Hasten to anger versus slow to anger. All these things are, these are the better things in life, he says. So let's, let's walk through a few of these uh, in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. One commentator wrote uh, this, that the name is used for everything which the name covers. Everything, the thought or feeling of which is aroused in the mind by mentioning, hearing, remembering the name. In other words, one's rank, one's authority, interest, pleasure, command, excellences, and deeds. In essence, in essence, our name is just what comes to mind when someone mentions our name. For example, Billy Graham, great evangelist, right? Charles Manson, deranged psychopath killer, right? Pastor Chris, hey, he wears a beard well. In Jesus' day, ointment uh, was a pretty valuable commodity, uh, and the communities were pretty dusty. So in, in John 12, six days before Jesus' crucifixion, uh, Mary goes and, and anoints Jesus' feet, right? And, and we're told it was pretty expensive. Uh, 
and that when she anointed his feet, the house was filled with uh, fragrance of the perfume. Told it the, that the, uh, the anointment was worth 300 denarii, 300 days pay, right? Denarii is like one day's pay. So a, almost a year's salary that she was, she was anointing his feet with. It's pretty, pretty valuable. But despite being very, very valuable, it's got a couple limitations. One, the perfume doesn't last. It just wears off. Two, it's just external. It's applied to the body on the outside. But a name, however, it's internal. It's internal. It's not on the outside. It's based on character. Certainly, you can be slandered, and he's not talking about that. So our good name, <clears throat> internal, but Solomon then goes on in, in chapter 10 and makes a note that our wise name can be damaged. And, and he says this in chapter 10, verse 1, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So just a little, just some dead flies in that, that great ointment, that great perfume can be messed up. So too, a little bit of folly can mess up your wise name. And that kind of gives us a hint of what Solomon is, it, it really uh, makes for a good name. So for Solomon, under the sun, yeah, let's go to the next one. Under the sun, a good name comes from pursuing wisdom. Throughout Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, wisdom seems to be key. And, and Proverbs 4, 7, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. Proverbs 8, 11, for wisdom is better than rubies. Proverbs 24, 3, through wisdom is a house built. Ecclesiastes 7, 12, wisdom is a defense. Verse 19, wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. 16, wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war. Over and over and over, wisdom is where he figures that's where we're going to get our good name. That's under the sun. But God, and this is where it gets good, God speaks in, the way I think of it, chords. And in a musical, musical notes where you have multiple notes in one strike. Um, multiple notes, multiple truths. There's a meaning for the author, the author's intended meaning, but there's also a greater meaning in God's intended meaning. So regarding the greater meaning, God's Word, and John, John's been teaching us about this, it's not about us coming to God, it's about Jesus redeeming His creation. It's about, uh, it's all about Jesus. All of Scripture is all about Jesus. So in Luke 24, 44, uh, John taught about this a little bit ago. Uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, right? Luke, uh, Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke. Uh, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And in John 5:39, it says, Jesus to the Jews after healing... To the, on the Sabbath says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it's, them, and it's they that bear witness about me. So all of this, even the Old Testament, is all about Jesus. John, you've talked about that several times. Furthermore, Jesus is the true wisdom of God. John mentioned that a week or so this past week, I think. 
1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24, Paul's writing, and he says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So for Solomon, under the sun, a good name comes from pursuing wisdom. That's his intended meaning. But in God's economy, above the sun, a good name comes from pursuing the true wisdom, Jesus Christ. And like Solomon argues, the name, the name is critical. It's not just any good name. We're told that when God calls us, we respond and we respond, he gives us a new name, right? Revelations 2. Revelation 2, uh, verse 17, it says this, He who has an ear, and this is to the church at Pergamum, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers or overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Kind of like... No one knows. Jesus, uh, uh, Peter got the new, uh, Simon got the new name Peter, right? Rock. James and John were called the sons of thunder, right? More than this, this new name is associated with a new city. Revelation 3, verse 12, to the church of Philadelphia. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my, from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. So unbelievers, they're named with man's city, Babylon, under the sun, literally confusion, but believers are named with God's city, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God double peace above the sun. So there's two. We have this new name. It's not just a wise name. We are following after the true wisdom, and we gain a new name that's associated with God, that's associated with a city. Under the sun, man seeks to make a name for himself, which was pretty much what Solomon was after and pretty much what the Tower of Babel was all about, right? We're going to make a name for ourselves, and that results in confusion, frustration, emptiness, because it's a senseless life. But above the sun, God seeks to give us an eternal name, this new Jerusalem, and with an eternal perspective, peace, joy, and life makes sense, even, even in the midst of this adversity. So... That's verse 1, part A. Verse 1, part B, Solomon continues, and he says this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Generally, uh, day of birth is a joyful time. Day of death is is a pretty sad time, but he says, no, this is different. So what are some possible interpretations on why the day of death is better? One, It could be Solomon is being cynical about the emptiness of life. Yay, this vain, miserable life is over. 
because uh, in verse in chapter six he says a stillborn child is better off than the one that lives. Or another interpretation could be Solomon is being optimistic about the final prize. Yay! I've attained a great a great name. You know, a baby doesn't have any reputation, but an old man does. So therefore, he's of greater worth. Or, see, Solomon could be just looking forward to the future rest. You know, yay, I'm free of these chains of sin and evil. No more confusion and unjustness. Things will finally make sense. Because he says in chapter 6, verse 5, he says, a stillborn child finds rest. You can't be absolutely sure, but in light of the meaning, uh, but in light of the gospel, we can be sure that God's word all all fits together and makes sense. So this passage, this whole passage can be interpreted in these two perspectives. Under the sun, man's perspective, man-centric, view from Babylon, or above the sun, God's view from New Jerusalem. So the day of death is better. Solomon's view from Babylon. Life of confusion will be over. Sadly, only our name lasts. All else remains behind vanity. But in light of the gospel, God's view from New Jerusalem Part A here, Jesus' birth didn't save us, right? It was his death that saved us, right? Therefore, the day of death is better. Jesus' birth was humble. Jesus' death in eternity carries great, great glory. Part B, okay, now focus more on man. Believer's birth is full of now a life of sin and death ahead of him, but a believer has life after death. So therefore, again... Death is better. He receives the reward. He's now with Christ, beginning of life without sin. In fact, the believer's death is the best day of their life. And uh, the Apostle Paul was, was hard to, he was hard-pressed, you know, in, the, in Philippians. For me to live is uh, uh, Christ and to die is gain. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Both are, I want to I wanna, I wanna be here with you guys. I want to go, go to be with Christ. Let's go to the next one, verse 2. House of Feasting, verse 7, uh, verse 2, is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart will be, uh, is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of gladness. In biblical times, the house of mourning, that's visiting the home when somebody died. Now we have, we have funeral homes, right? So from the man's view, from Babylon, feasting enjoys the moment. There's no real benefit to our name in a, in a feast. But mourning, it says, causes reflection. They lay it to heart. It urges us to live wisely to gain a, a, wide, a good name. That's a view from Babylon. View from New Jerusalem, in light of the gospel, mourning draws us to our wise Savior, in turn, gain eternal name. We were talking to our friends from Asia uh, last night, yesterday in the hallway, and they were saying, Satan is really helping us out in this evangelism because people are so oppressed over there. They were over there, uh, and a witch doctor came to him and said, you know, he was 50-something years old, and he says, I've been, a, I've, been, I've been beaten up by this for 40-something years or whatever, and I became a witch doctor hoping I can get out, you know, get away from this oppression, but can you help? And, of course, our Asia friends prayed for him, and he was delivered immediately, and God does amazing things. God does amazing things. This grave outlook on life is shared by 
morning is good is, is shared by those who lived each day as if it was their last. And here's a, here's a quote from uh, William Law, who was a Church of England priest, again, in the 1700s. He says, represent to your imagination that your bed is your grave. That's pretty, pretty, pretty not fun. That all things are ready for your internment, that you are to have no more to do with this world, and that it will be owing to God's great mercy if you ever see the light of the sun again or have another day to add to your works of piety. Wisdom is gained when we're reminded of our, our mortality. Let's go to the next verse. We'll cruise through a few more here, uh, or a couple more. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise, verse 5, than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Now, he's not talking about laughter in general, but there's this laughter of fools, crackling of thorns underneath this pot. The rebuke of the wise has characteristics similar to a funeral. Uh, it's hard to experience, but good comes from it. So, man's view from Babylon, there's a song of fools, and their laughter is like crackling thorns under the pot. They flame up quickly, and they die away just as fat. They provide little heat to heat the pot, very little profit to the soul. But God's view from New Jerusalem, the rebuke of the true wise Savior, Jesus, produces in us a new song. Not a song of fools, but a new song. Let's read Revelation chapter 5. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And he's talking about the, the Lamb, right? Jesus. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The gospel changes everything. It changes everything. This, this view from above the sun, the spiritual view, God's view, God-centric view, not man-centric view, what's in it for me? what's in it for God's, what that view, that changes everything. The words of the true, wise Savior instruct us that living for pleasure and selfish sin is vanity, that God has a time for everything, that two are better than one, that we should take care of what we say before God. Money never satisfies. In short, not to live for today, but live for eternity, live for God. And no longer sing a fool song, but sing an, a new song, an eternal song. And incidentally, priests, their whole deal was to minister to others, right? All right, we just got a couple of minutes. So let's skip down to verse 11. And the preacher ends his conclusion by restating the value of wisdom. And it goes like this in verse 11 of chapter 7. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, really those who are alive and living. Another translation, wisdom is as good as 
an inheritance. Verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. It's very strange for, for Solomon to be talking about money as something good, but is it, because in, in, in Proverbs 8, he says, wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire can compare to him. Wisdom is better than, wisdom is better than anything. So the fact that he's talking about wisdom is just interesting. But he notes that wisdom provides some protection, like an inheritance, like some money. So in view of the view from Babylon, money, like an inheritance, does not last forever, but as long as we have it, it's useful in providing some protection against the practical uh, difficulties of daily life. Wisdom preserves the life against warring nations, against uh, rebellious subjects, you know, your brother-in-law that wants to kill you and take over your throne, uh, against family members. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than 10 rulers in a city. But the view from New Jerusalem above the sun, in, again, in light of the gospel, sure, God's wisdom helps us understand temporary things like death and why things aren't fair and helps us live a better life. But more than that, God's true wisdom, Jesus, is our protector. He's our advocate with the Father. He's the one that continually prays for us. He's the one whose spirit leads us. He's the one who preserves our day in the day of judgment. He's the one who gives us an inheritance. In fact, God is our inheritance, and we are God's inheritance. And all who put their trust in God's true wisdom, Jesus, gain God himself. And if we were to continue, which we're not because time is up, <clears throat> and we just go through the rest of seven on into, into chapter eight, and we talk about keeping the king's commandments, you can just see there's a view of under the sun, man-centric, what's in it for me. And then there's a view, as we look at it in the greater context of all of scripture, above the sun, God's view, that understands both the physical and the spiritual realm, and it's at that point where things finally begin to make sense.